Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed, and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. I want to start with a story um, that ref- that's kind of similar to a, to a pretty cliche Christian joke. Uh, so forgive me, but I've, I've uh, modified it a bit. So I think to reflect probably a more realistic situation. There's this guy called um, Terry, uh, and his ha- and his town is flooding, uh, and the waters are rising, and they're quite uh, tum- tumultuous, and, and there's big waves, and it's getting quite scary, and a bit of a desperate situation. But he gets a, he gets a phone call from the rescuer saying, "Don't worry, we are coming. We're coming to pick you up. But can you go?" And talk to your neighbor and bring them with you. And, and um, Terry says, yep, sure. And so he hangs up and then he looks out his window and the, the water's like already knee height. And that's quite scary. It's, it's picking up. It's also very cold, so it's very inconvenient for him. And, and, he, and he's like, oh, no, I, I don't know. It's too hard. And the neighbors, they don't really like me. Like, we had this whole bit over the fence, and that was pretty ugly. So, oh, I, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. And so the water keeps rising, and in the end, he gets um, all the way to the top uh, of his roof, and the water's there. And someone comes along in a rowboat and says, Terry, we're here to save you, and we've got a rowboat. Do you, do you need a rowboat for anything? And he says, oh, no, no, that's all right. In the back of the mind, there's this niggle of what about the neighbor but the waves are too high the wind is raging no it's too hard too hard and then uh the, so the robot goes away then a speedboat comes along and says hey terry do you need anything do you need a speedboat for anything and he says ah oh, no 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 i don't want to inconvenience you it seems like a nice shiny speedboat i don't want to damage it or anything don't worry it's any speedboat goes a lot goes away and then uh finally a helicopter comes and, uh, and it says, Terry, I'm the helicopter that the rescuer has sent to save you. Is there, is there anything else we could do? Do you need that? You know, can we lend you the helicopter for a little bit? And he, he's like, oh, it's so windy. It's so inconvenient. It's so, like, scary out there in the storm and the flood. No, look, just take me. We'll go. We'll be safe. And he goes and he meets with the rescuer. And the rescuer says, Terry, why don't you save your neighbor? And, he, and Terry said, well, it was too hard. The waves were too big. The, and the rescuer said, I sent a rowboat, a speedboat, and a helicopter. What more could you have asked for? Usually when the joke is told, that's funny. But it's actually quite... <laughs> no, it's, that's not funny because I think that hits a bit home, right? Because we're called to be on mission. God's given us... A, a mission to make disciples of all nations. And Terry had, had kind of found himself in, a, in, a, in, in apathy, in a learned helplessness. Now, even when the rescuer had sent things and the rescuer was working, he couldn't see it and he couldn't do anything. And I think that reflects, like if we're honest with ourselves, parts of the church today We've come into this learned helplessness when it comes to God's mission to the world. And that holds ourselves back. 
part of it is it's it's hopeless. Like the the world is so lost and it's so scary out there, and um, there's so much opposition. There's so much opposition. Not only are we told uh, what we're not allowed to say, we're told what we have to say, and in recent news, we're told who we're allowed to associate with. There's so much opposition. We're also tired. You know, like the last couple of years have, have been exhausting. Or even, you know, <clears throat> some fatalists might say it doesn't even matter because God's going to do that mission anyway. Or are we just getting comfortable holding up in our nice Christian community in church, just waiting for the apocalypse and God to come and sort it all out? There's a million reasons why, why not to do something. And I think we, we see this reflected in the Israelites back in Jerusalem, who've been after exile in Nehemiah, after exile, they've been exiled for however long, and it's been a hundred years since um, Cyrus let uh, the Israelites back into Jerusalem. <clears throat> they've rebuilt the temple, but the walls, the walls are still destroyed. The sense of identity as the people of God still decimated, and they're not doing anything. Have they run out of steam? There's so much opposition. Or are they just comfortable in their despair? What I want to talk about today is how do we fulfill our prophetic purpose in the face of overwhelming despair? How do we turn apathy into action? Because that's what we see. That's what Nehemiah achieves. How does he do it? Well, if you have a Bible, open up to Nehemiah 2. And we'll follow along. <clears throat> And uh, Nick Tui, um, uh, my second, uh, <laughs> no, no, not at all. No. Um, he introduced both the context of Nehemiah in, in the Bible, the whole story of history, uh, but also um, introduced the situation of where Nehemiah hears about Jerusalem. The walls are still destroyed. Jerusalem still is fallen and it, it breaks his heart and he prays. And he's convicted, he confesses. And after a while, the, the king, King Artaxerxes, has been watching him and, it, and he notices a change in Nehemiah. And the king asks him, what's wrong? And Nehemiah says, well, can I go back to Jerusalem to rebuild the wall? And that's a very significant, bold ask. Because Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, like the equivalent of the chief of staff, probably one of the most prominent positions uh, in Persia at the time. And uh, for, for that person to say, can I leave and go back to my own country, a separate country, a, a separate nation to, to rebuild that is a big deal. And, and that's a big ask of King Artaxerxes. But he says, yes, go. How long will you go? And Nehemiah responds. And then it says, um, uh, the Nehemiah... Ask again. He doesn't just ask for a release to go do this, but he asks for more. And he, and he, he asks, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the Trans-Euphrates that they will be able to provide me safe conduct until I arrive to Judah. So not only does he ask for a release, he asks for a military escort. 
to protect him all the way back to Judah, back to Jerusalem. And not only does he ask for release, and not only does he ask for uh, um, protection, he asks for materials. He, he says, and may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, the king's own special forest, uh, where he, he has these great trees for his own resources, his own uh, benefit and pleasure and use. He says, can I go and uh, send a letter to Asaph, the keeper of that place, so that I can have a whole heap of timber to rebuild these walls in a completely different nation. And the king allows him. The king says, yeah, sure, go for it. And it's, it's not because of Nehemiah's uh, eloquence. It's not because of the way that Nehemiah asked him. Nehemiah is clear when he, when he says what, what led to the king allowing this. It says in verse 8, And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. In the ESV it says the goodness of God. The goodness, because of the goodness of God on Nehemiah, the king granted the request. Take special note of that. So Nehemiah goes and he continues and he travels to Jerusalem Excuse me. And when he gets there, he doesn't jump into action. He doesn't arrive and says, okay, everyone, it's all right. I'm here. I'm God's gift to Jerusalem. I'm here to fix all your problems, sort out all your issues, and rebuild the wall. No, he, he comes and he, and he waits. He stops. He doesn't share with anyone God's, God, what God has told him to do, the calling on his life. And then with a small group, he goes... And, and, and travels round, uh, round the walls. Um, so from verse 13, and if it, we could have the slides, Tim, with the image, just to give you a visual of where Nehemiah goes. The, the, here's a map of Jerusalem at the time, and if the next one zoomed in. Uh, and, he, and he starts out at the valley gate. He goes, exit out the valley gate with a very small group, just... And, and, and one, um, one horse to ride, ride on. And he travels down. We keep going. He travels. Uh, let's read this. Um, so he, he went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well, down towards the jackal well and the dung gate. What a name for a gate. Uh, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. It's decimated. So then he moves on, thanks to him, towards the fountain gate and uh, the king's pool. And he keeps going around to the king's pool, but there's no, uh, there's, there was not enough room for my mount to get through. So the, the walls were so destroyed, so decimated, that he couldn't even keep traveling around inspecting the damage. And so he goes up the valley the other way, goes up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, he turns back and returns through the valley gate. He goes and he wants understanding before action. What's the real situation going on here? And what he sees is quite desperate, quite um, horrible. The wall's destroyed. And... 
uh, Nehemiah, he, um, from there, he, he gathers the troops. He hasn't, he hasn't shared his calling with anyone yet. He hasn't um, talked to anyone yet. But now he gathers the officials, uh, the, the, the rulers, the priests, the nobles, all together. And he hasn't talked to them yet. But then in verse 17, he says, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins. Its gates have been burned with fire. The first thing Nehemiah does is he shares the sobering vision of reality. Being honest about the state of Jerusalem. And um, one um, Hebrew historian uh, reports this story, Josephus. He says that they... They gathered around the temple. And so as Nehemiah's sharing this, you can look out and see the ruins all around you. As he's just, Nehemiah's describing, the, the walls are destroyed. Things have been burnt down. We are in disgrace. Because this city is not a city. Uh, in, in the ancient Near East, cities were defined by their walls. And also the walls was uh, a symbol of the protection of God. And what led to Jerusalem being destroyed, as Nick shared last week, was Israel's sin, Israel's rebellion. And so the broken walls is a constant reminder of their shame. Nehemiah is honest and real about their situation. And I think there's lots the church can learn from that, of of looking around the state of the church and looking around of how, the, how people in the church have behaved and being honest and real about the state of the church. Honest and real about our own hearts and the sin and the rebellion that's, that's still in us. The next thing that Nehemiah does, he gives an inspiring vision of opportunity. He, gives the, he shares how bad it is. Then he says, come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so we'll no longer be in disgrace. Uh, before in verse 12, it says, um, Nehemiah didn't tell anyone um, what God had put in his heart to do for Jerusalem. He didn't come in and, and jump in and say, it's all right, guys, I'm God's gift to Jerusalem. Here I am to fix all your problems. And here he doesn't say his vision of, of, of opportunity. is not, I'm, I've come to fix it. I've come to rebuild the wall. No, he says, let us, let us, let all of us rebuild the wall. Because Nehemiah's calling wasn't about him. Nehemiah's calling is about what God has sent him to do. And he, and he calls all of Israel to be involved with that. All of Israel to be involved with that. And next week, we're going to hear some of the details of how Ezra, every Israelite pretty much just rebuilt the wall outside their own houses. Every Israelite was involved. Every Israelite had a part to play. But that's that, that, that alone still wasn't enough to inspire Israel into action. 
a sobering understanding of the reality and, and an inspiring call to arms to build, there was still something missing because it had been a hundred years since Cyrus returned, had sent the exiles back and maybe 70 years since the re- temple had been rebuilt and 15 years since Ezra's return and, and, and re- reform. So why hadn't anything been done? Why hadn't anything been done? I think it was because Israel was in a state of learned helplessness, state of despair, state of apathy. And what Nehemiah does next is he shares an inspiring vision of God's goodness. He shares that God is already working to rebuild this city. God is already working. And so verse um, 18, it says, I told them about the gracious hand of God on me. That's the same words used before. The gracious hand of God on me and what the king had said to me. He, shared, he says to the Israelites, well, unfortunately it's not recorded here, but I imagine like God's already working. I was able to ask the king to come back and he let me. I was able to ask the king to escort me back and he let me. And I asked the king for resources and he gave them to me. God is already working. God is working to rebuild this city. God is good. The goodness of God is upon us. And it's that, it's that that the Israelites hear and see and then they respond, let's start rebuilding. Let's start rebuilding. So they began the good work. And, and, and actually quite miraculously, they rebuild the wall in 52 days. Like, that's phenomenal. It took a, we had um, house renos, unplanned house renos. We had to replace our floorboards. It took six months. 52 days, 52 days to rebuild the wall. Now, as we reflect on this passage, like, it's good to think, where, where do we fit? Where do we fit? What, how, how do we reflect in this passage? And um, uh, often we might, you know, it's good to reflect on Nehemiah as a leader and the leadership lessons we can learn from that. And there is a lot to learn from that. But it's important to remember that Scripture is written for us, but it's not necessarily written about us. And I think a more realistic um, application of, of, of ourselves in this passage, we're not Nehemiah, we're the Israelites. We're the Israelites. And is Nehemiah presented as a model to lead like, or is he a forerunner of a king to follow? Because there's, there's a whole heap of parallels between Nehemiah and Jesus, humbling himself from a place of power and privilege to seek and serve Israel, the opposition he faces from both outside the people of God and inside the people of God, the task of building up the walls and rebuilding the city of Jerusalem and rebuilding the people of God, the dwelling place of God. There's parallels there. And after Jesus died and, and is... And even after his resurrection, his disciples were still scattered. They're still not sure what to do. They're still in a state of apathy and inaction. And Jesus comes back to Galilee. He gathers them together and they worship him. And he gives them a mission where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. 
Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Jesus gives his disciples a mission. He calls, he doesn't say, I'm going to go and disciple the world and I'll, I'll convert everyone, I'll do all the work. He involves his disciples in God's mission of, of making disciples, calling people to follow Jesus, baptizing them, uh, including them in the kingdom of God, and teaching them to obey, transforming their lives. And he gives that image of good, the vision of goodness. He says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. God is, Jesus is king of the world. He ha, he's the one with authority over Olgate, over Bridgewater, over the Adelaide Hills, over Mount Barker, over Adelaide, over Australia, over the world. He is the one in control. He is the one with authority. And he is working. Jesus says, surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He's working through his disciples. He's working. And so the task set before us, we've got some big things coming up. We've got the amalgamation. That's a piece of cake, right? We've got the big building project in Mount Barker, easy. The challenging task ahead of us is is God's mission in the Adelaide Hills, making disciples in, in, in our context, mission to lead people to trust and follow Jesus <clears throat> in this overly secularized, sexualized, self-focused world. And now while, while, while we might see overwhelming despair, Jesus sees a world in need of him. He sees sheep without a shepherd. And he sent us to build, uh, to, to make disciples. He hasn't sent us to, to build a church so that we can get comfy. Jesus doesn't say, you go build your church. Jesus says, I will build the church. What he says to us is go make disciples. And so how do we fulfill our prophetic purpose in the face of overwhelming despair? We need a vision of God's goodness. What we need is Stories. Stories to hear that God is already working. He's already working in the Adelaide Hills. And we need to see that. We need to hear those stories. And around the world, I should say. There's great stories around the world. We need to hear that so that we know that God is working. That God is good. What turned Israel from apathy into action was a story of God's goodness. And they unlearned their helplessness. They unlearned their helplessness through the testimony of God's goodness. So let's keep telling that story. What I want to do is open up the floor and, and, and invite two or three people, we'll keep it to that, uh, to share a story of God's goodness. Because I know they're out there. And uh, we'll, we'll do that. And then we will... Celebrate communion together. Celebrate probably the, the greatest event to ever happen. The greatest gift God has given us. The greatest way that God has worked in the world is Jesus' death and resurrection. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. And then um, I, I invite people, I'll leave the mic here. Come grab the mic. Share a story of how God is working 
uh, in your world or, or in the world. And um, yeah, and let that inspire us into action. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your goodness. We thank you for your goodness to Nehemiah, allowing King Artaxerxes to, to give him all that stuff um, to rebuild the walls. And Lord, we do acknowledge that um, the mission ahead of us is tough. And there's probably stuff within ourselves we need to be honest and real about and confess and to be forgiven of. But Lord, we know you're working. And I just pray as, as two or three or maybe four people come and share that we would just be captivated by how good you are. Captivated by how much you love us and how much you are already working in this world. And Lord, may it not just be a happy story to hear, but may it inspire us into action to step out in faith, to, to share Jesus in our workplaces, to share Jesus in our families, in our, to, 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 to live counterculturally as hard and as tough as that is becoming because we know that you have all authority in heaven and on earth and you are with us to the very end of the age and you are working in this world. So Lord, we're, we're listening, we're ready. And we just want to glorify you for your goodness. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Hills Baptist Podcast. If you'd like to partner with us in developing and equipping passionate disciples who love God, love people, and boldly share the gospel, you can do that at hillsbaptist.com forward slash giving. We pray this message has empowered you to live and love more like Jesus. Have an amazing day.